Hello, I'm Lulu. Hello, I'm Lulu's mother, Sandra, and this is Inside the Jewel Box. Inside the Jewel Box is a podcast in which my mother and I meet with fascinating people from Aotearoa and inquire into the objects that give meaning to their lives. When my darling daughter suggested a podcast about the objects that give our lives meaning, I told her I'd love to hear the stories of those objects that people hold close. In the podcast, Lulu and I talk to wonderful people about objects they have loved, desired and mourned for. Join us in this conversation. This is Inside the Jewel Box. Welcome to episode three of Inside the Jewel Box. In this episode, we interview Richard Fahey about his three chosen objects. Richard is a senior lecturer in design and contemporary arts at Unitech, Auckland. His research activity is focused on material culture of Aotearoa. As an independent writer, critic and advocate, he addresses contemporary cultural production and its reception via the historical and institutional context of education, critical discourse, collection and exhibition. I'd like to welcome Richard Fahey to our Inside the Jewel Box podcast. We'd like to know what is the first object you have chosen for us? Well, it is a pleasure to talk with you about things that are, um, are dear to my heart and that I have a great enthusiasm for. Um, I am, I suppose, what would be said, a collector of ceramics. So obviously the three objects I've chosen today are all ceramic objects. Um, all quite different though, and uh, hopefully my explanation will give you some sense of that. But the first object that I have is the oldest one, um, and that's why I presume it's first, because it's the oldest one. Uh, and it was made by a ceramic artist called Peter Hawksby. And uh, it was made in um, the early, early 1980s, around 1982, 1983, I'm not absolutely sure when. Um, I'm not uh, part of my collecting I'm not really that much of an archivist so I don't really recall the dates, times, titles and things like that um, but it, I, it, I know it's a work from the early 80s um, it's a blunted what he just titled a blunted vase um, it's a it's a cylinder um, it's around it's 20 centimetres high and it's a diameter of about six or seven centimetres. It's a, the colour of it is sort of a metallic dull brown and it's like the skin of the clay is slightly blistered. It's been high fired in a wood kiln uh, and the, there are objects that are uh, fired inside the cylinder and they poke out the top um, these are things that he referred to as loops and wands um, and they are a part of a series of works that he made called blunted vases um, one of the prompts you gave me uh, was around the fact that uh, maybe think about something that you had lost. 
and had been refound. Well, I haven't lost this work, but there is an, an intriguing story about it being lost. Um, is that uh, Peter Hawkesby, he made it in the early 80s uh, while he was living here in Auckland. Um, but he left New Zealand in 1984. He waited long enough to vote for David Longy's Labour government, and as soon as the election was over, he got on a plane and he went to Japan for an undetermined amount of time. And he was um, in Japan 10 years before he returned to Auckland. But before leaving, he packed up a box, a cardboard box of, of pottery works that he'd made, and he left them with his sister uh, to look after. Uh, and then on returning back a decade later, he asked his sister where was the box, and she couldn't quite recall what she'd done with it, but she thought she'd left it at the end of the garden. And so he wandered down, tried to find the work that he'd left with her to look after, and realised that it was buried in a, in a, underneath a compost mound. Um, and so he excavated and the cardboard box had long been perished but the pots were still there um, so they got unearthed um, and got to see the light of day once more and, uh, and I always found that very intriguing about this particular, these, this particular pot because it had sort of disappeared um, and needed to be re-excavated and how did you then acquire it? Uh, to be honest, I can't recall, but I, 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 not precisely how I acquired it. Um, uh, uh, to explain that, I need to tell you an earlier story about how I first encountered his work. Um, and I was a very young man at the time. I think I was in my last year of high school in Hamilton, and it was 1981. And... I travelled from Hamilton to Auckland. Uh, it had been probably the second or third time I'd ever been to Auckland. And the occasion was I was bringing up some artwork, and that artwork was going to be used in a, um, a protest movement. It was the Artist Against Apartheid. It was at the time of the Springbok tour protests. Um, and I'd made some work that was going to be used. And I had to deliver the work to a place called the Potter's Arms on Dominion Road, and that was a pottery shop that was run by Lex Dawson, Peter Longy, and uh, Nicky Jolly. And at the back of the pottery shop was a meeting. Um, and that, in that meeting there were um, the key figures of the protest movement. There was uh, Tim Shabolt, John Minto, Trevor Hart, all these luminaries who we now understand as being pivotal in... Um, bringing uh, consciousness around the Springbrook tour. And it was, it was only a tiny room, and it was standing room only, really. And I, um, it's only now that I understand quite the significance of that event, but at the time I really didn't I really quite understand the gravity of what was occurring. So I was just hanging around in the shop, waiting for this meeting to end, um, and in the front window of the Potter's Arms, there were these works. There were four or five works of, made from ceramics. And that was my first encounter of a Peter Hawkesby pot. And I remember it was uh, slightly romantic, but it was almost like an epiphanous moment. And I think I can almost trace 
um, my interest in ceramics to viewing these works. So I had no idea who they were or what they were, but I just remember the effect of seeing these uh, these group of pots, which he I subsequently learned he called them weapons, uh, and they were kind of shaped like a goblet, uh, but the the rim there were these spikes. And they were particularly kind of sinister, aggressive-looking things. And I was just riveted. It's like I'd seen nothing like this ever before. When we think of pottery, we think of you know things, cups of tea and things you make, store food and etc. These were like um, UFOs. They were like the strangest things. And it was an image I never could shake. Um, and it wasn't until many, many years later that I... I I found out who he was, what it was. Um, and they were made in 1981. Uh, and the reason I'm telling that story is because it gives you a reason, it gives you an explanation of why these are called blunted vases. Because the spikes and the kind of aggressiveness of the works that I saw in the window had, has been softened. And... Um, and there's a kind of a, a slightly more mysterious quality to the subjects. They're not, they don't look like a weapon. Um, and so that phrase, the blunted vase, is recognition that Peter said that, you know, 1981 was a kind of a tense time. Yeah. And he was, he was responding to the aggressiveness of what was occurring around him in the social political world. And those weapons were a kind of sign of the times, but um, he he felt they were too aggressive or it was too difficult. So he began to soften his work. And so they, that's why they're called blunted. How interesting. It's like a, that moment of going into that meeting place with all those key figures in the uh, protest movement. It's like the work he'd done then was a sort of polemical, like laying down a mandate both for himself in terms of the, that movement and what would be your future collecting. Yes, and, and, and it's slightly embarrassing because it was such a moment, and yet as a young man of seven, 16 or 17, whenever I was, I didn't quite appreciate it uh, at the time. Uh, and it's only in hindsight that I, I can kind of understand the significance of it. And many years later, I, I, I still talked to Peter and asked him about the weapons. And I said, where did, you, where did the idea come from? What was that, those forms, those really, uh, you know, ugly, aggressive, kind of sinister forms that he made? And he told me a story that when he was a young man, about the same age that I was when I saw that work, um, he, late one Saturday night, he was in Christchurch, the central city of Christchurch, and he got confronted. He was on his own, and he got confronted by a group of street gang and they were quite they menacing towards him and he felt he was very in danger um, and quite fearful for himself and he, what he did was he he grabbed a bottle and he smashed it and the, the bottom of the bottle broke off and he, he kind of defended himself by thrusting this broken bottle in the face of these people who were accosting him um, and it just it, divert, it they disappeared, it it diffused the situation, and that was so that was his connection 
to why he made those forms. It was like a self-defense that prompted the weapons that he made. And then subsequently now, you know, the bluntedness is like, you know, uh, wanting to uh, uh, ameliorate the aggression. Um, and in, in some ways, that's what, how I see these, because they're not the, the splunted vase. It's got a kind of alchemy quality to it. It's like it could have been uh, made for some long-forgotten ritual. It's got a, a kind of mysteriousness about it um, and invokes a kind of magical thing. And that's... So I... Yes, it was about... It was a few years later he made these and I can't recall when I acquired it. But looking back in what you're saying, it's almost an origin story for you as a, a collector and a lover of ceramics and equally for him. It's, yes. it's got quite a few origin stories sort of wrapped That's right. And in the wood. The, the nice thing, you know, the story I told you about it being buried in a, underneath a compost heap for 10 years, that has a nice reflection because uh, when I think about the career of Peter Hawkesbury, he made work, he made ceramics in, from about the mid-70s until he left for Japan in the 1984. And he was in Japan 10 years. He returned to New Zealand and um, he then uh, occupied, he was the proprietor of the Alleluia Cafe in St Kevin's Arcade here in Auckland. And he did that for just shy of 20 years. And so there was a period in his making career, 30 years, in which he didn't make any ceramics. Um, and it wasn't until he retired uh, from the cafe in 2016, and he was fully retired, that he started to make work again. And he's been madly prolific ever since. Um, so the idea of that, that object got buried, it's sort of like his career got buried for quite a long period of time and then reinvented. And um, he's making magical things and doing phenomenally, you know, remarkably works. And the same kind of surprise and same kind of illumination that I felt standing in front of that window is what I see I still feel when I think about his work, the new work he makes. And subsequently, in this next phase in his life, how many works would you say you now have of this? Um, I'm an unashamed fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> Looking around, like, yes. <laughs> uh, and, but I like to, you know, uh, Peter's work uh, is all sorts of things that are coming and going from his work. There are th and in some ways, the 30-year hiatus where he didn't make any work, uh, when he returned to it, it was almost like that 30 years didn't exist. He picked up from where he left off. And there is a kind of a, a lovely trajectory that you can see in his work of things that he's always turned to and always done. But they get reinvented in all sorts of different ways. Um, what so, would you say those things are, or themes, or ticks or reference points? Well, certainly the tick is a form that appears in a lot of his work um, and that the tick as an image or a motif uh, began in the mid-70s. Um, and his, his reasoning for the tick 
although I think it's morphed. I think it, it, but his idea right at the beginning about doing these ticks, which he became known for, was that when he looked around at the world of contemporary art in New Zealand, all he could see were crosses. Um, and, you know, Colin McCann crosses, Alan Murdoch crosses, Ralph Hodry crosses. There were crosses everywhere. And crosses are sort of heavy. They've got that, you know, they come with all sorts of uh, associations, um, which are loaded. Whereas Peter thought the tick was just like a simple gesture, a simple sign of approval, um, and much more kind of, you know, almost light relief. Uh, respite from the abundance of crosses um and but the tick is, uh, has morphed throughout his career um like most of the things he does um so rich the piece you had those pieces are they quite rare now they don't live in a larger body of existing um, work no he didn't make a great deal from the mid-70s to the early 80s, there isn't a lot of work. Um, and like I say, he didn't get... There wasn't a critical, popular audience for his work. Um, Peter was in the habit of giving a lot of it away. Um, interestingly enough, the best collections of Peter Hawkesby's 70s and 80s work belong with Potters. The Potters looked at his work and thought, that's amazing. How on earth can you have the gall to do things like that. They, he, he, he drew a lot of admiration from fellow potters, um, and they retain his work. But there, it's very rare. This is not a, a lot. And I, I, over the long time, would crawl over broken glass to, to acquire those early works of his, like these three. Let's go for a deep dive on Peter Hawkesby. Peter was born in 1950, Cockle Bay, Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. He began making pottery in 1974. Since then, Peter has created works calculated to subvert both the history and how-to of pottery. After halting his practice almost entirely for 20 years, to live in Japan and then return to Tamaki Makoto to run Alleluia Bar and Cafe in St Kevin's Arcade, Peter wondered if he would ever return to pottery. Thankfully, he did in 2016, partly through redeploying pieces made earlier in his career in concert with new formations to create a series of cenotaphs that seemed to memorialise his loved ones. Using a method of post-kiln assemblage, each piece Peter creates conveys layered narratives told through many of his own idiosyncratic gestures and materials, ticks, screens and infinity windows, some of which were collected from a compost heap in his sister's garden. In Richard's essay for Peter's exhibition called The Tender Brick at Object Space, Richard describes the physical experience of Peter's work, which cannot be captured in photographs of it. He writes, Preoccupied with the palpable sense of intimacy, Hawkesby cultivates multiple centres of interest through a visual itinerary that diverts the singular point of view. With close scrutiny, we are able to feel the silky suppleness of an unglazed porcelain loop or the grainy matted texture of a blistered brick. The eye becomes squeezed in and between the fissures, 
feeling the sharpness of the crack and sensing the teetering of one form as it gingerly touches another. As it traverses the contours, the eye becomes quickened by the shiny, slipperiness of a glaze and slowed by the implacable weight of a thick slab. Pleased or deceived, the eye has reenacted an obstacle course, and in doing so translates in purely abstract terms a bodily experience that performs the internal or felt image of the body. Forty years ago, Peter worked against and beyond the Anglo-Oriental movement in pottery. Today, Peter is still creating spectacular, poignant works that pulse with a love for people and pottery. Peter's work is represented in public and private collections throughout Aotearoa, including the Douse Art Museum, Museum of New Zealand Te Papa, and Auckland War Memorial Museum. Peter now lives and works in Ōtipoti, Dunedin. Now, back to our interview with Richard. You're listening to Inside the Jewel Box. So Richard, what is the second object you've chosen to talk about? Uh, the second one is a rather special little teapot, uh, and its title is The Enjoyment of Freedom Teapot. And it was made by a Wellington artist, Richard Stratton. Um, and there is a story about how I came to acquire this teapot. Uh, it was a really... It, this dates back to uh, around the early 2000s. Um, here in Auckland, there was an exhibition that was at the Tuuru Gallery. And around 2001, 2002, I can't call exactly. And the exhibition was uh, curated by Moira Elliott, and it was called Heralds and Harbingers. And she had gone round uh, New Zealand and seen all the graduates out of the polytechnic ceramic programs. And she had made a selection of who she thought were very interesting young graduates who had just recently um, gone through a formal academic program in learning ceramics. Uh, and she brought these uh, probably, there may have been a dozen, 15 different practitioners and had this stage this show called Heralds and Harbingers and um, as was my interest to look at contemporary ceramics um, I went to the exhibition and I um, I purchased a piece from that exhibition and it's not this one it was a, a ceramic bowl and I was very pleased with myself but it's when I first uh, saw this teapot um, and I didn't I was a bit troubled by it and I, it didn't seem to in my mind fit it didn't, there was nothing about it that, that I could recognise What do you mean by that? Um, I think I mean I, I like to look at a lot of contemporary ceramics and in particular New Zealand ceramics and so I suppose there's certain tropes or certain visual characteristics or there's, there's things you recognise that's been made in the style of that that's been made with that thought in mind and yet this was like completely foreign object alien object to me it, it, it seemed to have landed from somewhere else um, and that's and the thing was uh, um 
the image of it kept recurring um, for some years. From from when I first saw it, it was about it, I kept seeing it. And when that something like that happens to you, you, it's best not to ignore it. It's like there's something in it. The subject is a teapot. Uh, it's uh, quite a small object. It's 18 centimetres wide. It's The body of the teapot is an ovoid shape, uh, and it's about 10 centimetres high. Um, it's not a functional teapot in the sense that you, it will pour liquid because the spout... Uh, is solid uh, and the spout is made uh, it's a snail that has been slip cast off another object and it's been attached to the side in order to replicate a spout um, the handle of the teapot uh, is this sort of multicolored uh, band of different colored clay um, and I've subsequently learned from Richard Stratton that it's like the licorice, coloured licorice straps that he used to buy as a child and consume. Um, the body of the teapot sits on four small gilded gold glazed feet. Again, these are slip casts from moulds from another object. Um, the lid of the teapot is made of a multi-headed baby face of a baby uh, and which may well have come from a mold of one of Richard's children's toys and out of the top of the head of the baby is a screw um, the bottom half of the, the teapot body has got this blue decorative tradition traditional kind of uh, decorative motifs that are very reminiscent of um, Dutch Delftware, blue and white wear, and the top half of the teapot is a very, a, what the Chinese call oxblood, it's a glaze called sans de boeuf, um, which is a very traditional Chinese glaze, and that's the kind of the nature of this pot, is that it's made up of uh, a variety of different types of references that um, come from that talk about ceramic different ceramic traditions, and they are kind of it's a kind of a conglomeration or a confectionery of these different references. Uh, but one of the things that I find quite intriguing is that whilst the different parts of it, you can kind of think where they might come from, but the pot itself is kind of it, it kind of is com comfortably a coherent kind of whole. Um, it does tell you a lot about Richard because. He's deeply entrenched within the history of ceramics. So the Dutch reference, the Chinese reference, the reference to his own, his, some way his own biography gets kind of mixed up with the history of world ceramics and they kind of talk to each other, these things. Um, but he's subsequently gone on and made, you know, pursued a very technical kind of appreciation of a ceramic of ceramic practice and incorporates it in his own idiosyncratic manner. And it's the idiosyncratic nature of this that I think so delightful. And um, as a consequence of our visit uh, to him that afternoon, where I was very pleased to 
walk out with the teapot. Um, Anna Miles agreed to, or she then at that point decided she would represent Richard. And so I've seen work in Anna Miles' gallery ever since of his work. But that's the beginning. That's the start. His work is almost the polar opposite of uh, Peter Hawkesby's work. As you said, Peter's internally driven. And this shows such a deep knowledge of the history of teapots, both in their surface, surface Mm. coverings and in the technical, sort of the Industrial Revolution, the whole, you know, Wedgwood and onwards. Yeah. Yes, um, that's right. And I, it is interesting to me, you know, where is the wellspring of people's motivation and where does it come from? Um, and Peter pursues his own individual aesthetic and regardless of anything, he will go down that. Whereas, you're right, Richard is deeply entrenched in the history of ceramic practice. Um, and not just, and that that you know New Zealand ceramic practice and the and how ceramics came to New Zealand, but also global. Um, and when you sit down and talk to Richard, um, he is kind of like kind of slightly gruff, kind of. Uh, but he's he just is fully passionate about these histories, and he finds very oblique things like. I asked him about teapots, and, and I, for an hour later, had a, a complete breakdown on the opium wars because the, the Chinese or the English um, waging war in the late 19th century in China to break China's global... China was exporting tea, ceramics, and silk to Europe and insisting that Europe pay them in um, money, not anything else. It was gold that they wanted the payment in. And so the British decided to break that monopoly and therefore flooded China with um, opium that they got commissioned to grow in India in order to bring the Chinese emperor to his knees. So here this is like gunboat diplomacy and the whole history of that engagement and teapots and the origins of tea and the English thing about drinking tea, these are the things that Richard just goes down a rabbit hole with. And that's what's constantly um, providing him inspiration, motivation for making the works he does. And that's why his work over the last few, you know, over recent times just keeps moving and changing because he's constantly kind of engaging in that kind of discussion with himself. In my domestic life, I think you can never have enough teapots. I like teapots a lot. And I've always liked the idea that you can sort out the world's troubles sitting around having cups of tea. But Richard's obviously, his, his, the teapots are a catalyst for having conversations about the world, yes. our history, our, mm. our future which is another way of sitting around the tea. You know, he, he does such technically different things. Does he run a course over a few years and then shift? Or uh, I think, yes, I think as much as there are significant technical shifts or technical ambitions that he, he, he takes on, 
But as much as that shifts, there's something constant about Richard, and that is he's, already, he's always implicated it in himself. His own bio, 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 biography is, you know, mixed up with the work. Um, and it's that in, interesting confluence of, on one hand, it's a commentary about the world history of ceramics and its developments, and then on the other hand, it's um, Richard being annoyed at something he saw on the 6.30, you know, 6 o'clock news. And these two sudden things get kind of joined together. And that's what makes his work kind of, in my mind, quite interesting. Um, and it's not, it, it's, it's a kind of reinvention of tradition. He doesn't, whilst he's very particular about the materials and how he uses them, and he will go back and research the very original ways in which glaze was applied, the way in which clay bodies were brought together, or firing techniques. Um, he's he he likes to kind of you know not cheat on that regard, um, but they look contemporary. They always look like they are not historical replicas. No, and uh, is he a tea drinker himself? I should be a drinker. <laughs> now, let's go for a deep dive on Richard Stratton. Richard is a maker of conglomerations. His teapots, tureens, and vases are greedily assembled ceramic mashups that reflect his unending fascination for the historical forms of European domestic pottery alongside his own autobiographical entanglement with the political issues of the day. Form and visual effects are at the fore rather than function. His distinctive ceramic stream of consciousness results from the productive friction between his encyclopedic knowledge of arcane industrial clay technologies and unrestrained curiosity about any controversy in social fabric. In his own words, he's turning earthenware vessels into porcelain carriers of god-awful troughs of information. Richard's compound vessels fuse wheel-thrown, cast and hand-built components, many of which are indebted in time spent rifling through local op shops, acquiring esoteric componentry bits, is equally keen on archiving arcane ceramic technical information, tools and materials. He says, My studio has become a repository for old materials, stains, oxides, pigments, glazed materials, and very hard to get old ingredients. I like the idea of using old things and old materials to make new work. Among his prized possessions is the Manual of Practical Potting, 1897, originally bought to New Zealand by James Rowley, who came to Otago to reinvigorate the Milton pottery in Southland. In 2007, Richard had his first solo exhibition at Animal's Gallery. In 2010, he was awarded the Douse Art Museum Dean Award for decorative arts and design, and in 2015 took up a residency at the Golda Gugard International Ceramic Research 
Denmark. In 2017, he won the Premier Award at the Portage Ceramic Awards. His Daos Art Museum exhibition, called Living History, toured the country across 2017 and 18. His work is represented in public and private collections in Aotearoa and overseas. His work is in the Auckland War Memorial Museum, the Daos Art Museum and Te Papa. He's represented by the Anna Miles Gallery. Given Richard's interest in the timeline of the craft, it seems only fitting that his biography is situated within a ceramics origin story. In 900 AD, lustre first appeared on pottery in Mesopotamia. The first recorded use of enamel on Ming Dynasty ceramics was in 1425. The first clearly documented reference to tea drinking in England was in 1658, and in 1700 teapots arrived on British shores. In 1745, porcelain was first manufactured in England. Jump all the way to Richard Stratton, born in Otipoti, Dunedin, in 1970. He graduated from the Otago School of Art in 1993, the same year he made his very first teapot, which was green, thrown, altered and wood-fired. He now lives in Tafonganui, Ataro, Wellington. Now back to our interview with Richard. You're listening to Inside the Jewel Box. Richard, so what is the last, the third object you have Sandy, it's a ceramic object, um, and it's a work made by Andrea Duchatinet. Unlike the the two objects I've talked about, uh, this is quite a... Well, how do I I tell the story? Um, I've known Andrea for about over 30 years. I first uh, knew of Andrea Duchatinet when she was a student um, under, undergoing a diploma in, in jewellery at Waikano Polytechnic. And that was the very first teaching job that I had. Um, and I became aware of Andrea then, not so much for what she did as a jewellery student, but more for the fact that she ran a cafe in Hamilton. Um, and she... Uh, used to bake the most gorgeous cakes. Um, she was also uh, uh, an individual who was quite striking. She's quite a tall woman, um, impeccably stylish woman, uh, but very. She used to wear these very bright clothes, and I suppose the most distinctive, dominating char- visual characteristic of her. Um, was that she had a beehive, this, this coffered beehive, which was like two feet higher than her head. It's most remarkable. And every day she... And she still has the beehive. It's not quite nearly as high nowadays. It's shorter, but um, she's an impeccably stylish woman and, uh, and very clever and uh, very entertaining. Uh, so I kind of knew her as a as a personality more than as an artist. Uh, when she finished her diploma in jewellery at, at 
Waikato Polytechnic, she then transferred and did a degree in sculpture here at Elam in the University of Auckland. Um, and she then, her practice moved into uh, kind of mixed media, multimedia practice. Uh, and then I had, some years later, had the pleasure of working alongside her as a colleague. She was a teacher at uh, Unitech, where I taught. Um, and for a few years, um, uh, I knew her as a teacher, and she was a very good teacher. And then, then she moved to uh, Wanganui, and uh, she's since then she's been remained teaching at the Polytechnic in Wanganui. Um, and as always, throughout this time, has always continued to make work. And like I said, most of her work, for a good part of her career, uh, was a sort of mixed media installation sculpt sculptor, uh, installation practice. Um, but sometime in the last four to five, six, seven years, maybe, um, she found ceramics. She, I think. She told me once it was like she had to teach a course in ceramics, so she quickly had to kind of learn a little bit about it. And um, then from that point on, she just got totally infatuated with the material. Um, and in some ways, what I think is interesting about her work or about the objects she makes is that um, whilst she has a great ref, uh, reverence towards ceramics and the history of ceramics and the material technologies and all that, and she um, she hasn't come through the usual. She's not a potter. She didn't learn to be a potter. Um, so, she, so she comes at the media and the materials from a very different uh, perspective. Um, but she is uh, she's fallen for the clay. And she says to me, it won't be any other material, ever. Um, because she finds with clay, and that's what's distinctive about this object, which I'll describe in a minute, um, it's pushing the materiality of clay, what it can do. Um, the object is, uh, it's a sculpture, well, I suppose we call it ceramic sculpture, um, it's made from, the form is put together and that looks like, um, in fact, is form that is comes from foam rubber. What do, I, what do I call it? Foam rubber, kind of stuff they put around appliances to stop appliances. It's, it's foam rubber insulation and it has that dimple thing. Um, and how that, how that comes about is that she takes the foam rubber and she then uh, impregnates it with coloured porcelain slip. It's dipped into liquid clay and then fired. Um, and then the glaze that's put up on top, the, there is a particular thing that Andrea has perfected and I think the chemical she puts into the glaze is called feldspar. And if you increase the amount of feldspar in, in, in the glaze recipe, the glaze gets very thick and it runs. Um, so it has a very kind of distinctive quality, the glaze. It's almost like um, a melted custard pudding. Uh, oh, I should say the object is about 30 centimetres tall. It's thin. 
um, it, it has been made horizontal, but the work has been stood up and elevated uh, into a vertical position so that the pooling of the glaze that kind of indicates the profile of the work um, is something that happened on a horizontal, but it's been elevated on this kind of thin wafer-type shelf. Um, I don't know, it's a very difficult object to describe, and I don't know if I did much of a good job there, but the distinctive thing about it is it's, it's also this intense sort of acid lemon yellow colour. Um, and how I came to... This is the most recent work of the three that I've spoken about, and it came about only a few years ago um, Andrea contacted me and asked me to do some writing for her because uh, she was having a show in the Whanganui, the Sergeant Gallery there um, of her recent work and they were going to publish an essay and she asked me would I mind writing the essay. Um, I'm not a writer, that's not my profession and uh, I generally, and I have written some things, uh, but generally I find writing is like pulling teeth. It's uh, it's not something I enjoy doing. Um, I find it very difficult. I'm not a natural writer, as as most professional writers are. But if the subject is something that I am deeply interested in and engaged in, and I want to find out about, then I'll. So I was more than happy to to say yes to Andrea um, because I had been watching her work for some years and I I liked it a lot so it seemed like a very good writing project to take on and she said you know um, she would pay me to do that to do the writing um, and I thought no I don't want payment that I'll do your writing if you can give me one of your works so we we're going to do a contra deal we'll trade so this is how I came to acquire this work. Um, it was sort of commission. It was a partly commission in a sense. Um, but then it, the question was: once I'd once the writing had been done, she said, "Well, which work would you like?" And it was a bit of a problem. I didn't really know how. And I did that terrible thing that you should never do to an artist. I asked them. I said, "Do you remember the work that you made a few years ago?" that I had seen a work that had been a finalist in the Portage Ceramic Awards here in Auckland, um, a similar yellow work. And I had greatly admired it at the time, and I thought, I was cheeky enough to say, can you make me one like that? And that's a terrible thing to say to an artist, because one, you, you can never make a work the same as you've ever done before. It's always going to be different. And that's what a lot of people do, is they say, oh, I really like one of those. And I rather embarrassingly said to her, um, can I have one of those? And much to my surprise, she was delighted. She said, yeah, I'm really eager to make those. I really like those too. And I, you know, so this was the deal um, to, she would make a work very similar to the one I'd seen earlier, and that would be what I would receive in payment. Um, and sometime later, she rang me up and said, I'm driving up from Whanganui to Auckland. I'm bringing the work with me. You know, 
and so she brought that work in. <laughs> and, she, and I said, that's fantastic. And it was just as I remembered it and just... Uh, and I was so delighted to have it. And then she said, well, actually, in my car I brought another one up because I thought you might not like this one, but I've got another one. So I said, go and get it. So she brings up the second work and says, look, I thought you'd quite like to choose... And I went, oh, no, I can't do that. I couldn't choose because I love them both. <laughs> so the arrangement was I would receive one in payment for the writing and then I purchased the other one because I couldn't determine between that one and that one. So I felt I needed both. You know, the one you've described looks like a giant deconstructed pastry. In a, in a surreal world. Yes. And interesting you should say that, because that's when I wrote the piece about her, her work, I talked quite a lot about um, there's ambition. She's interested in this, this process called kinesthesia. It's where uh, there's a... Uh, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's a mental malady. It's a, it, it's a disease that can affect people. Um, but it's where the neurons in your brain get crossed um, and you hear colours and you smell sounds. And in her work, it's like they're objects, but you, you want to consume them. They're, they're kind of edible. You think of them, you want to taste them. So you visually look at something you wish you could taste. So it's, it's a kind of confusion of the senses. And she's deeply interested in this idea of making objects that can transform our aesthetic, our visual aesthetic kind of appreciation of the works. You, so, de you definitely want to stick your... If that was lying down, you'd want to stick, stick your, your finger, finger in, in the blobby yes. icing. <laughs> they, they are so edible. They look so edible. And again, this is a, one of the things that motivates her in her work is that she wants to push clay to its limits. She wants to get clay to do things that clay, one, we don't recognise as clay, and two, clay doesn't want to do. Um, so she's at the very extreme edges of what's clay's tolerance, and that's how she comes up with these remarkable kind of, these assemblages or these sculptures or these objects. But you describe Andrea as having the beehive and being very stylish, and these pieces have got all of that too, the essence of her. They're, yes. they're sort of slightly over-the-top, magnificent pieces, not what you normally associate with ceramics. No, I, and I think, um, again, part of my appreciation, New Zealand ceramics has a huge history of the 1960s and 70s studio pottery movement. And essentially that's all brown, brown pottery or kind of very nature-inspired pottery, dribbly glazes. It's the whole kind of natural aspect of pottery. Um, Andrea kind of goes right against that grain. These are kind of, one, it's colourful. And we don't like a lot of colour in our art. We quite like dour, sombre, serious tones. Um... Whereas this is playful, it's very colourful, it's fun, it's um, 
it's a different kind of aesthetic, and I think that's why I appreciate her you work. You know how you said Peter was uh, saying no to the crosses and yes to the ticks. Andrea's saying no to the brown. To the brown. And yes to yeah. the... I think in the Over writing the I said a lot of lot of our art appreciation, you know, it comes from us going for walks in the bush. Whereas when you look at Andrea's work, it's like going into a pastry shop. You know, it's or a lolly shop. It's about confectionery, but it's also about celebration. It's about um, a certain kind of levity. Um, and that's what I think makes her quite distinctive in our current landscape. It's amazing, though, how the three pieces you have described actually work together. I mean, they're not placed together in the collection, but they they can speak to one another, can't they? They look good. I think they do. one another. But then, I'm, as I say, I'm constantly moving them around so they can have different conversations, and then I can see them differently. Um, but yes. And Richard, one thing you you once said to me about ceramics and how um, important they are to us as humans in the long trajectory of we've always lived with ceramic pieces. Yes, I think I read somewhere some, a long time ago that you can kind of trace the evolution of humanity or different civilizations by looking at the ceramics, by looking at the ways in which... Um, different epochs have treated ceramics. Uh, there is something about when you take what is essentially clay, which is essentially uh, compacted earth, you add water to it to form it, and then you fire it at a very high temperature. There's a very unusual uh, thing that happens with the chemical bonds between the atoms. They, they bond in such a way that um, they're permanent. They're the most permanent man-made things, um, and they don't degrade in the environment. And that's why ancient civilizations are really only known to us by um, the ceramic artifacts that people made and have been subsequently buried in the ground and unearthed, um, because they don't they don't go through a, a natural process of degradation that most man-made things will will do so they persist through time and the other thing is that we we often forget when i the objects i've talked about uh the teapot is a decorative item um andrea's sculpture is again is, is a decorative item but we are surrounded by ceramics you know out the toilets we use the basins we use um ceramics is used in huge vast ranges of technologies that we're not familiar with pacemakers the key thing element in a pacemaker is ceramic because it doesn't alter it's it's its environment doesn't change it um so it's it's a material that has been put to all these uses you know throughout civilizations um when anna and i were in just before uh covid we had the privilege of going to Rome. And one of the images that I can think about now is, is seeing an excavated wall of an ancient Roman villa and then seeing a ceramic toilet, the pipe to the toilet, in this 
Roman villa, which was sort of 500 BC, is a ceramic pipe. Um, so in a way, that's how we've got you know, rid of our human waste, brought water to us and then taken it away. It's, has been for centuries on centuries made of ceramics. So it's, a, it's everywhere. Um, I don't know if that answers the, well, what no, your question. I think it's interesting because often in Western cultures we elevate the thing in a frame on a wall. But if yeah. you go to Korea and the museums there, or you go to Japan, they have such a you know high regard for pieces, the ceramic pieces that are, are centuries old. And you, what you just said makes you think that ceramics is a world that faces you in a practical way. Yes. But it also is having another conversation about possibilities. And the pieces you've talked about yeah. today are about new conversations yeah i think uh, when i think about ceramics uh in its kind of historic or in its aesthetic way and and the ways we might appreciate them i don't think of them perhaps and probably to my detriment i don't think of them as art i think of them as more as material culture and i think material culture the things that people make um objects they need to make to live by, to use on a daily basis, whether it's to pour your cup of tea out of or, you know, it's the ceramic basin in your bathroom. Um, these objects or material culture is capable of carrying those conversations far easier and, or, or in a far richer way because it's, in, it's embedded within the social lives of the people who use the works and in the context and historical context in which they come from um, I think the conversations that art has it, uh, sometimes can be thought of as kind of too rarefied um, or a conversation that only speaks to a certain audience um, whereas objects made for daily use has a much greater uh, ability to talk to a much wider audience and so it's, to me it's, 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 I like to think of them as material culture as opposed to an artistic heritage. Now let's go for a deep dive on Andrea Duchatinier. Andrea makes ceramic objects that are gorgeous, flirtatious, and tempting enough to want to eat. She's a ceramicist who loves colour combos that zing and glazes that ooze and slide every which way. One part sorceress, one part pastry chef, Andrea is clearly having fun manipulating her lovelies into performative gestures that say, let's eat cake and let's party. The visual levity and efference of these work prevails. Richard Fahey says that the artist's ultimate goal is to induce a sense of synesthesia when neurological wiring becomes cross, colours, smell and taste become sound. It should come as no surprise then that we have an urge to stick our fingers in one of Andrea's custard-like glazes and sample the wares. None of that restrained oatmeal sensibility here. The forms and iridescent colour that characterise these works speak to an artist joyously creating a very singular vision. Andrea was born in Kirikiriroa, Hamilton in 1958 between 1990 and 1999, 
she completed a certificate in craft design at the Waikato Institute of Technology, a Bachelor of Fine Arts at the Auckland University, and a Master of Fine Arts at RMIT, Melbourne, Australia. Andrea has received numerous grants and awards for her work, including selection for the Sao Paulo Biennale, the Wallace Art Trust Vermont Award, and the Portage Ceramics Residency Award. Over the last decade, Andrea's works have been exhibited throughout Aotearoa and overseas. In 2020, Andrea had a solo exhibition at the Sargent Gallery, and then in 2021, she had a solo exhibition at the National in Christchurch. In 2004, she was the artist-in-resident at the Tiley Cottage at the Sargent Gallery, Whanganui. Since, Andrea moved to Whanganui, where she continues to make work and lectures in art and design. Richard, it's been just great having you talk to us about three objects you chose. You talk so well, and it makes you really look and think in different ways about each of those people you've talked about, the makers, and those works. You have so many wonderful things. We were very curious about which ones you would actually select. But your three selections just start off so many new conversations. So thank you very much for being so generous with your knowledge and your own collection. Well, thank you, Sandy and Lulu. And it's been a pleasure. I mean... Uh, you're talking, you got me to talk about things that I love. That is not a hard thing to do. Thank you for listening to Inside the Jewel Box. To see images of the works we've talked about in this episode, please see our Instagram at Inside the Jewel Box. Thank you to our interviewee, Richard Fahey, for his amazing deep dive into the ceramics in New Zealand and our sound person, Mitchell Innes, and, of course, our lovely listeners.